Um, I want to ask you a question. How do you react when things don't go quite the way you planned? Now, I thought of a few different scenarios that hopefully everybody can relate to. Um, maybe you always think it's never your fault if something goes wrong. Now, I love a bit of FIFA. Um, there's a bit of those lads in here love a bit of FIFA, and I play FIFA with my mate Daniel Atchison. Now, if you ever play FIFA with Daniel, it's never his fault if he loses. You all probably know someone like that. It's never their fault if they lose. The referee's cheating. That's right, the virtual referee's cheating. I'm always jammy, and I get jammy quite a lot, apparently. Someone's walked in front of the TV or the controller is just dodgy. It's not his fault. Maybe something goes wrong, you throw yourself into your bed. I do that from time to time. You hope that the pillows and duvet will take all the, the, the bad things away. And sometimes they do, you, know, you get a good you know, eight hours sleep. Um, maybe you're a shouter, maybe you get into a real attitude, you turn up the sass, you're a real sass queen, and that is not just the girls, that is also the guys, trust me. Maybe you pretend everything's okay, everything's grand, you lie to yourself. Maybe you give up, you get into a bit of a rage and just quit. Or maybe, a bit like me, you try and run away. And they made a movie about me actually as well, um, if Andrew May wants to put that up. Yeah, run, fat boy, run. Maybe, maybe you just run away from your problems. Um, if you have any doubt that I run away from my problems, you just need to look at my university track record. At one point I was sitting on four courses in four years. That's a lot of running and I'm still fat. Um, looking from one thing to another to try, I could run to, to try and make me happy. And you know, sometimes I think we all fall into this category, running from our problems towards something that might look a bit better. And here's the thing, with each and every one of those responses, they all involve looking to something for comfort or reassurance or satisfaction. Blaming others, not reassurance, it's not your fault. Sassiness deflects from the real problems that you're facing. Lying to yourself, you're trying to tell yourself there's nothing wrong, or running away from things that don't seem to be going well to something that might look a bit better, that will hopefully satisfy. Now, maybe you noticed when the passage from Ruth was being read, the first couple of verses involve a bit of suffering. It's not exactly a start of what seems to be a happy story anyway. To say things don't go to plan would be a bit of an understatement. And some of those things are obvious and some of them aren't. So if you put up the first few verses, we'll try and walk through those quickly. And it starts off, in the days when the judges ruled. Now you could easily read this and not understand its significance at all. Judges, you might know, it's a book of the Bible. It comes just before Ruth. Um, the judges were people who ruled Israel. They were like, instead of kings. But the days of the judges were not good times in the relationship between God and his people. They were disobedient. They turned their backs on him. And they lived almost impressively immoral lives. They rejected God and his ways time and time and time again. Not a good time in the history of God and his people. And then, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine. Now, I don't know about you, but I like my food. Um, so I think a famine is probably the worst natural disaster that I could ever imagine. No food, no fun. That's the motto of the McMenemy household. And in the Old Testament, a famine was a sign of God's displeasure because of the disobedience of his people and their unfaithfulness. And you can read about that in Leviticus 26 if you want, we're not going there now. But there's a broken down relationship with God and his people. There was a famine, and now the family that we're zooming in on, and Ruth, 
that we're reading about, they are refugees. It says there in the ESV, they went to sojourn in the, in the land of Moab. And if you sojourn in another country, you're a refugee. You live there, but you don't have the same rights as citizens. And you can see that right now across Europe. You have people coming up from countries with war and persecution, and they're traveling through countries that they aren't given rights in, and they're not really treated as people. And they go to Moab, and we'll touch on Moab in a minute, but put it like this, it's not really a ported down, it's more of a lurking. So times aren't good. There's a bit of suffering that comes. So how does the family that we're introduced to react? Who do they look to, or what do they look to for safety, for satisfaction, or for comfort? Now, little side note here, it's important to know that in some books of the Bible, names are important. It's not like today where you're named anything, um, kids named, you know, Northwest or whatever. Uh, my brother is called Shane. His name means nothing at all. Um, he's called Shane genuinely because my mum watched TV. There was a character on Home and Away. If we all seen Home and Away, what a load of nonsense. There was a character on Home and Away called Shane. So my brother is called Shane for that reason. I'm called Scott because my mom thought it was a nice name, but my name, or names mean nothing now. But in some of the books of the Bible, names are important because they mean something. And for the author of Ruth, names are important because the only people that he gives names to, or she gives names to, whoever wrote the book of Ruth, um, were important characters. And the first person we meet is a fellow called Elimelech. That's a bit of a horrible name. But his name means, my God is king which is a bit of an unreal name. If you were an Israelite reading this for the first time um, or hearing the word Elimelech, you'd be like, oh, good name, good choice of a name. And as far as names go, this is up there. So if you heard someone was called Elimelech, someone called my God is king. If you saw that on Facebook, you'd expect to see someone who's pretty serious about God. Maybe someone who could be manly or maybe very holy. Definitely someone who's serious and real and authentic about their faith. Someone that we'd like to think we'd react well in hardship or suffering. But big Elimelech here, he is a massive disappointment. He is a massive letdown. This famine comes, and although I said famines aren't great, not at all, they're pretty common enough at this time. It wasn't the end of the world by any means. It's a bit like when you go to McDonald's and the drinks machine's not working. It's, you know, a bit of an inconvenience, yeah, it happens enough, often enough, though, that it's not the end of the world. It's not a big surprise. But this famine here seems to be a big tipping point in Elimelech's life. So he goes off to Moab. Not only does he go to Moab, he brings the entire family too. People of Moab and the people of Bethlehem and Judah, that's where uh, Elimelech and his family are from, they were not good mates, put it like that. Uh, in this infamous time of the days of the judges, there weren't good relationships there, and there was an old war or battle thrown in for good measure too. To go from Bethlehem in the promised land to Moab is to give up what you once claimed allegiance to, to completely turn your back on your loyalties. It's a bit like moving from Clowna to Killikameen, from Portland College to, think of the worst place you could move to, Lurgan College, John. Yeah, um, it's like going from Queens to Jordanstown. Um, a non-academic you know, example would be going from Arsenal to Spurs, or a CE example would be like going to the Grace and Peace team to going to like Malahide. You just don't do it, you just don't. But the real kicker, the thing of ultimate importance here 
is that in Bethlehem and Moab, they worshipped different gods. In Bethlehem, they worshipped the one true God. In Moab, they worshipped a pagan god. Now, Elimelech says with his name, his God is his king. But in no way does he live like it. He leaves Bethlehem, and really, he leaves behind his God. And he goes to try and find comfort in other things. Suffering and changes in circumstances, hardships, they don't change what we believe. Suffering doesn't change what's in our hearts or make us change our allegiances. It doesn't turn God-fearing people straight away into God-rejecting people. Suffering and trials actually just already reveal what's inside our hearts. And Elimelech, he's seemingly had it all going for him. His wife, Naomi, as we will see in a few weeks' time, was an absolute star, and her name means pleasant or sweet, and she shows that with her life. He was blessed with two sons, which at the time was pretty good. He would have someone to carry on his family line. He had an unreal name, my God is king. And he lived in the promised land that God had given to his people. But that didn't really satisfy him. So when famine came, he showed his heart's true desires. Weren't what they had seemed. And he went looking for everything and anything else but God. He left his land behind, he left his people behind, he left his culture and his community and his God behind. And maybe tonight, maybe there's some people in here that would maybe label themselves as a Christian, you'd call yourself that. Maybe you try and show it by what you have or where you go or what you do or what your religious views are on Facebook. Maybe a bit like Elimelech here, you're not quite legit. Maybe it's not really real for you. Sure, you go to the right things, you say the right stuff, you even wear the Christian uniform of a Hollister t-shirt and pair of Converse, and you have your iPhone in your hand just in case someone thinks you're not saved. But really, you look to God, or you don't look to God, you look to everything but God for satisfaction and belonging in this world. And if the Bible has anything to say, and if real life experiences of people I know have anything to say, going after stuff instead of God, only leads to disaster. It will lead to more emptiness, more of that feeling of want, a desire for more that will never be met. And if you look at Limelech, he doesn't trust God the king to provide for him in the promised land. So he leaves, and in verse 3, he dies. Or maybe you're a Christian, but you still find yourself looking to other things that aren't Jesus to satisfy you, and I've been there time and time again. I'll put my hands up and say, I will be there time and time again. Seeking after lusts, that lets you down so much more than you'll actually ever realize. Popularity, maybe you're looking for that. It doesn't last. Love of money only leads to that feeling of emptiness, and the list can go on and on and on and on. It's not worth it. What we see here is that there's nothing in this world that will actually ever satisfy you, that will make your life worth living, that isn't Jesus, that's not God. Elimelech, he left Bethlehem, the promised land. Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread in a time of famine, to go elsewhere, to seek after something else that would satisfy him. And this is what Jesus says in John 6:35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. 
whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's not literally you'll never hunger or literally you'll never thirst, but spiritually. And Psalm 107 says this, let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Is your soul longing? Is it hungry? Jesus is the only one who can ever truly satisfy our restless hearts. He's the only one who can give meaning and purpose to this life and through his perfect life and his death, death and his resurrection, he's taken away our sin and he's brought us into a relationship with the God who satisfies every longing soul. So back to the story. Elimelech dies. So what now? Surely something will pick up for this family, right? And it says this, these, her sons, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not Oprah. Uh, the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Malin and Chilean died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Now, somehow, this situation manages to get worse. Malin and Chilean, that means their names mean sickness and destruction. By the way, why you would name your children that, I don't know. Like, I mean, you're, you're dooming them right from the offset. Um, they don't learn the consequences of their father's disobedience. And they go after things that are forbidden. They take wives who worship different gods. So flirt to convert doesn't work. Um, and like their names suggest, they get sick and they die soon after. And this is a bit of a weird way to meet Ruth, who this book is named after, right? Not much is said about her yet, but we know she's a foreign pagan woman who gets married and widowed pretty soon after. It's not a good way to meet someone. And her mother-in-law has it just as bad, if not worse. Just look at Naomi's situation. She's widowed, her husband's dead. Childless, both sons dead. No one to carry on her family line. She's in a foreign land, with foreign people in a culture she isn't used to. She's old by this stage, and I know this sounds sexist, but she's a woman. And at this stage in the world, being a woman wasn't a good thing. It, you had not and you had no say. She's completely empty and seemingly without hope. It almost seems like she's suffering for no reason, right? She can't lose anything else. She has nothing else left and suffering, as we can see from this passage, it sometimes comes from disobedience and sometimes not. And sometimes it's pretty easy to see why we've um, been in the situations that we're in. But often it's not. That brings us to the question, why does suffering happen? Suffering always has a purpose. Suffering comes to refine us. Suffering comes to make us more like Jesus. Suffering comes to humble us so we will lift our eyes to the one who is sovereign and perfectly in control. And it might be hard to hear that. And it might be hard to see how that could be good. Now, I don't know what you're going through. I don't. I don't know what the things people in this room tonight are struggling with, the crap that's in your life, sins you're struggling with, issues at home, things that happen in school, relationship problems, and it's not just the big things. Loneliness, heartache, rejection, even becoming more aware of your own sin. 
things that can make us cry out, why is this happening, Lord? But faith and following Jesus, sometimes it involves a willingness, a willingness to leave our why, Lord, questions in the mystery of God and our confidence and our rest in his trustworthy promise that this present suffering that we're facing is not all that he has for us. And we see this in Romans 8, 18. And Paul writes, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, God doesn't leave us in our suffering by ourselves. He doesn't leave us hanging. Look at Ruth and Naomi. Without going through the rest of the book, you can probably guess that God changes their situation for good. He's able to redeem a seemingly unredeemable situation. Just look at the book that we're studying. It's called Ruth. A once pagan, foreign, widowed woman was massively influential in the history of God's plan. And that phrase that is in verse 6, if you put it up, the Lord had visited his people is one of the first times in this wonderful book that we are shown God's redemption plan. A plan that we will see time and time and time again throughout this book and throughout the Bible. A plan where he is deeply involved and he's personally active within our lives. And to see how he has visited us, how personally involved he is, and to see that suffering can be redeemed for our good and his glory, just look to Jesus. See that on that cross, when the single greatest suffering anyone has ever gone through in the entirety of history. A perfect man kneeled to a cruel cross was for your good and for his glory. And if you believe that and you trust in that and you have faith in that, if you have faith in him, there's so much more to this life for you now, knowing that this present suffering isn't all there is, because we know that three days later, Jesus rose again. Powerful over sin and over death, even over suffering. And that you have eternity with him ahead of you, no matter what you're going through in the here and now. So as we finish, I ask you, don't ignore Naomi's response to the Lord visiting his people. She returns. And the Old Testament to return generally means not just to go back somewhere geographically, but to go back somewhere spiritually to repent. To repent and follow him. So I ask you tonight, go to God. Repent and follow him. Look, you, you can see how bad your sufferings are, but he is so much greater. He is the only one who can ever satisfy your longings. Look how good he is, how faithful he is how loving he is, how sovereign he is. He will always love you. He will never leave you. So the takeaway from our first part in the series of Ruth, he uses our suffering to help us know him better. Our sorrow and grief, if we know Jesus, it's only temporary. And he still has a plan when it seems chaotic. Go to Jesus because in him is redemption and life and a future.